Good afternoon, everybody. I want to make a brief introduction of our speaker tonight, Father Augustine Weta, particularly for those who were not here last night. We had a lot of students here from 501 who got to listen to him speak. Uh, but for the parishioners or friends who are here, we're very happy to have you here at Our Lady of Wisdom. Father Augustine uh, is a Benedictine monk from St. Louis. I actually met him this summer for the very first time at a youth conference. We sort of hit it off, and I really enjoyed the talks that he gave. And so I said, Father, why don't you come down to Lafayette, and you can eat some good food. And he said yes. So he's been here for the week. He's the author of a couple of books and travels all over giving talks. And it's going to be on my team for the gumbo cook-off on Saturday. So why don't we all welcome Father Augustine Weta. Thank you. Uh, so I begin all of my talks with the same disclaimer. If you were here for any of them so far, then uh, you can daydream for the next few minutes, next few seconds. Um, I played 18 years of rugby, and that is about 16 years longer than anyone should play rugby. And I was hit in the head so many times, I have a permanent tremor in the right side of my body. So if I point to you like this, I'm not angry, and you're not in trouble, and you don't have to wave back. It's just me. Um, this talk has three parts. Uh, the first part is the elephant in the room. More on that later. Uh, the second is your vocation to failure and the saints that will lead the way. And last of all, a, pa a practicum. Um, that is, I'll take questions or just randomly spew out whatever comes into my head if there are none. So let's begin. Um, actually, let's begin with a prayer because St. Benedict says to begin no good work without praying that God will finish it for you. So in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. Dear God, finish this for me, amen. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Uh, St. Justus Takayama Yukon, pray for us. More on him later. Uh, so, I was invited here tonight to talk about saints and failure, but before I begin, it's important to address the elephant in the room. Mother Syncletica of the desert said, it is a dangerous thing to teach virtue before you have mastered it yourself. It is like inviting a traveler in to take shelter when your house is falling down. I may have written the book on humility, but it would be a very silly thing to consider myself an expert. The truth is, my house is falling down, but I'm inviting you in anyway. So welcome. And you've been warned. At my ordination mass, the first reading was the call of Elijah. And I remember that day well, and that reading particularly well, because the lector at my ordination mass left out the crucial last sentence. He left out the part where Elijah says, here I am, send me, which is like the whole point of the reading. Fast forward 19 years, and I find myself smiling condescendingly 
on that young priest who would dare make such a demand of God. Send me. And there have been times when I question the wisdom of the decision I made that day. Knowing how hard the life of a prophet can be, why would anyone volunteer for the job? Now, the gospel reading at that Mass also played a large part in my discernment of my vocation. At a crucial moment during my novitiate, when I was certain that St. Louis Abbey was not for me, I had a very vivid daydream. This is not in itself unusual. I spend most of my life daydreaming. But on this occasion, I had been reading about the call of Peter, and I imagined that I too was on the beach at Gennesaret, and I too was packing up my fishing nets and tackle. And when I looked up the beach, there was Jesus, and he was walking along the shore in my direction. He was choosing his apostles. So on he came, and he was walking toward me. As he drew closer, I could see the determination in his eyes, and he was, he was walking straight toward me. He came closer and closer, and just as he got to my boat, he stopped and turned around and chose the guy in the boat next to me, and then he walked away. <laughs> was this a sign that I was not called to the priesthood? Well, it might have been, except that I, I became convinced. I, I rebooted the daydream. I got angry and ran after Jesus, going, wait, wait, choose me. Here I am, send me. Now, this has been a hard few years to be a priest. And they have been the hardest yet for my beautiful community in St. Louis. But I knew when I signed up that we might have a hard go of it. I was told that we were likely to lose men. I was warned that the life of a Christian was not easy. And that I would find myself on the front lines of a war for souls. I was told that every soldier, when he comes face to face with the enemy, questions his decision to fight. But a good soldier knows that for the sake of his brothers in arms, he must stand his ground. I was sharing this with some of my students not long ago, and one of them said to me, you know, you monks may be the Navy SEALs of the church, but this is like Black Hawk Down or something. <laughs> <laughs> and it feels like that. But you know, there were guys who deliberately parachuted into that fight. Who, knowing the odds, deliberately put themselves in harm's way. They wanted to be there. And I believe those men were heroes. So here you are. Here we all are. Priests and lay people alike. In the thick of it. And the pressure is sometimes unbearable. The enemy has us surrounded. Some of us are very discouraged. Some of us have run away. And some have simply cracked under the pressure. But I told my students, and I've told my brother monks, and I think I can speak for a lot of the people here today, when I say there is nowhere in the world I would rather be right now. You all parachuted in on a Thursday night, is it Thursday? Yes. <laughs> and I'm grateful. You pray for me, and I'll pray for you. And we'll pray together for vocations to the priesthood. 
Now, lately, I've been thinking about Winston Churchill. My father is a military historian, so I get this 24 hours a day. Winston Churchill, not a great theologian, probably not a saint, but a great soul, a steadfast soul, a soul who, when it looked like his people were just about to lose heart, he gave this speech that steeled their resolve. And I find myself reciting his words in a new context. He said, I have nothing to offer but blood, toil, tears, and sweat. We should prepare ourselves for hard and heavy tidings. And I have only to add that nothing which may happen in this battle can in any way relieve us of our duty to defend the cause to which we have vowed ourselves. Nor should it destroy our confidence in our power to make our way through disaster and through grief to the ultimate defeat of our enemy. And when we see the originality of malice, the ingenuity of aggression, which our enemy displays, we may certainly prepare ourselves for every kind of brutal and treacherous maneuver. But at the same time, I hope with a steadfast eye. For even though many have fallen and may fall into the grip of the enemy and all the odious apparatus of his rule, we shall not flag or fail. We shall go on to the end. We shall fight with growing confidence and growing strength. We shall defend our home, our church. Whatever the cost may be. We shall fight on the beaches. We shall fight on the landings. We shall fight in the fields and in the streets. We shall fight in the hills. We shall never surrender. Or to put it in more biblical terms, do not worry about tomorrow. Tomorrow will take care of itself. So that's part one. That's a serious part. Part two, your vocation to failure and my favorite failure saints. Now we're going to begin actually with um, Achilles, not a saint either, uh, but he'll, he'll be a foil for the rest. In one of the great scenes of Western literature, the enraged warrior Achilles, unbeaten and unbeatable, he stands outside his tent on the beach of Troy, while three ambassadors beg him to rejoin the battle. And Achilles, who is unmoved by their appeals, he says, I hate that man like I hate the gates of death who hides one thing in his heart and says another, so I'll say it straight. Will Agamemnon win me over? Not for all the world. Not now that he has torn my honor from my hands. It's a shocking passage, and particularly to us moderns, because we have to ask ourselves, how does anyone steal someone else's honor? Well, scholars have written volumes on this. And I wrote quite a good novel, by the way, based on the life of Odysseus. We'll talk about that later. Um, the Greeks of the Bronze Age measured their honor in stuff and in reputation. Time and kleos, they called it. Sometimes you hear it translated honor and glory. Time was measured in stuff, 
The more stuff you had, the more honor. And if you took some of my stuff, you literally took that much honor. If someone stole a Greek hero's cow, they stole one cow's worth of honor. Actually, we were having this disagreement. Uh, Father Pelessier and I were having this. I shot, I shot a buck and he took it. And anyway, there's, we, we may not, our friendship may not recover from this. <laughs> okay. In truth, he gave me the gun. He put me up in the blind. He gave me the bullet. He showed me the buck. He told me to shoot. I didn't. He told me to shoot again. I did. Anyway, and then he went and got the buck. So it's really his buck. Anyway, <laughs> glory, that is kleos, was determined by popular opinion. Okay, So if someone insulted a Greek warrior in public, he literally damaged that man's glory. So in Agamemnon, the general of the Greeks, he steals Achilles' slave girl. He takes one slave worth of honor. And Achilles never gets over it because honor is a zero-sum game for the Greeks. The more of it you have, the less of it I have. Now, the reason I tell you this story is because I think Achilles has begun to make a comeback. In fact, here I digress for a second. One of my students, I was talking with my, I teach classics, and one of my students brought me this uh, rap by Kenrick Lamar, which I, I don't necessarily recommend to all. But he, he talks about, he's quite a genius in his own way, he talks about uh, growing up in the ghetto and how he, um, it was all about money and reputation, money and reputation, right? And he says, and then, but I fought my way out and I, I earned my way out of the ghetto and, I, and now I, li I hang around with, with rock stars and movie stars and models and he says, and now it's all about money and reputation, right? It all comes back around. It, it, maybe you should listen to Kenrick Lamar. I think, though, as a culture, he's right. We've begun once more to measure our honor in material, external things. I mean, on social media, you can literally measure how many likes you have. And if you don't have as many likes as the other person, you're not as popular, right? How many followers you have. You can measure your honor, your kleos, your time. And I think we've begun to feel the stress of it. Of course, my purpose is not to whine about how lousy the world has become, but rather to propose solutions, okay? So I, I would like to propose antidotes, and I offer them in the form of four stories, okay? Uh, five people, five saints, four stories. And as I move from one story to the next, I want you to keep Homer's invincible hero in the back of your mind, okay? So, saint number one. John the Baptist. He ate bugs. I could, I could stop there, really. <laughs> and I think I would have made a, a pretty good point. But I'll continue. He wore uncomfortable, unattractive, homemade clothes. He died young and was, by his own admission, unworthy to unfasten the sandals of the man who came after him. When his own followers decided to abandon him to follow Jesus, he actually encouraged them to do so, saying, well, I must decrease so he can increase. What a sad thing to say. Can you imagine any movie star, superhero, CEO, politician 
Even one of my fa our favorite televangelists saying something like that today, I must fail so that Hillary can succeed, you know? Like most of the prophets, well, yeah, can we back this up and rewind? <laughs> this is what happens when I go off script. Um, hey, sorry. Like most of the prophets, John was murdered by the very people he was trying to help. And, then, and he was preparing them for a man they would eventually reject, humiliate, and execute. And yet, Jesus himself said of this failure that he was the greatest man born of woman. He's one of the few saints in the Roman calendar who has two feast days devoted exclusively to him. His birth and the other, ironically, his beheading. All right, story number two, Saints Simon and Jude. Here are two men who owned nothing, about whom we know very little. Saint Jude was confused with Judas. So often he eventually became the patron of lost causes. Right? What's more, the gospel writers themselves can't seem to keep his name straight. John calls him Judas, but not the Iscariot. Luke calls him Jude, the brother of James. Matthew calls him Thaddeus. <laughs> Nothing is said about him in any of the Gospels except that he asked one question. Not a very good one. He says at John 14, 22, What's this? <laughs> That's it. There's a New Testament that bears his name, but most scholars agree that someone else wrote it for him. We know even less about Simon. Uh, mostly he goes by not Peter. <laughs> Luke calls him Simon the Zealot. Matthew and Mark call him Simon the Canaanite. Yeah, that's it for Simon and Jude. They even have to share a feast day. And yet... They were chosen by Jesus to be two of the original 12 to lead his church. Story number three, my, one of my, well, my, my favorite, St. Edward the Confessor. Here, a refreshing change of pace, right? He's a king. By the standards of the time, obscenely wealthy, singularly influential, However, he is generally considered one of the worst politicians in the history of Britain. King Edward, son of Ethelred the Unready, an inauspicious beginning if ever there was one, was a weak, impotent, timid, and famously ugly man. In worldly terms, a complete disappointment. During the course of his reign, Edward lost all the money in Britain without accumulating any political power. In fact, he allowed himself to be used as a puppet by, of all people, his mother-in-law. Then, when she was done with him, a pack of foreign con men took over. Furthermore, despite his marriage to an intelligent and famously beautiful woman, he never managed to produce an heir, which is the one thing even an incompetent monarch can usually pull off. 
Some claim that this was his choice because he secretly wanted to be a monk, and who doesn't? <laughs> Others claim that his wife just could not force herself to help him in this way. Indeed, King Edward the Confessor left to history a reputation for weakness, indecision, and complete financial incompetence. And yet, he remains England's most popular saint. He built the world's greatest abbey at Westminster, and over a million people visit his tomb every year. Story number four, bringing it closer to home here, Rose Philippine Duchenne. She's from St. Louis, by the way. And uh, I gave this talk once to, or a version of it, to uh, some Sacred Heart sisters and got in a lot of trouble. So she was, she was a Sacred Heart nun. Um, so I'll just, I, I'm just going to quote her autobiography. So the, or no, sorry, her biography. So these are the words of the scholar Marion T. Horvat. They're not mine. The first, the first order she entered closed. She did not feel realized in the second institution until she came to America to convert the Indians. Then, instead of carrying out this long-desired mission, she was ordered to teach girls and found convents. This work was more difficult because she never learned to speak English. She founded one convent that failed, then another that foundered. The girls, she said, were ungrateful and worldly, and the sisters unchafed under her governance and asked her to leave. When she finally was permitted to go to work in an Indian mission, she was 72 years old, too old to work or to learn the language. And after only one year, she was denied even that great consolation. She was ordered to leave the Indian mission and return to Florissant, Missouri. And I've been there. It's awful. There she died, having converted one Indian who apostatized three months later. And yet, she was utterly faithful to her call as a missionary. She was called to be a missionary and called to fail. And a century after her death, the Potawatomi Indians still remembered her when the Jesuits finally showed up to do the job right. They said, oh, right. That's what she was trying to, the woman who prayed. They knew her a hundred years later as that woman who prayed. Now, saints like these would have baffled Achilles, right? Simon and Jude died without Timae or Cleos. Edward squandered his political influence. Rose, John the Baptist had his head cut off. Rose Philippine Duchenne died penniless and profoundly disappointed. No honor or glory here, not by Greek standards. In fact, these folks come up pretty short by our modern standards as well. And, and you have to wonder at the church's logic when it holds them up as role models. And yet, that is the logic of the cross. A logic which redefines success, and turns human wisdom on its head. In the light of the cross, failure becomes promise. Weakness becomes strength. 
The meek and the humble inherit the earth. This is why Nietzsche ridiculed Christianity as a religion of the weak. We come from a long line of failures. Sometimes we actually seem to take pride in it. Mother Teresa was asked once if she could possibly hope to succeed in India where the poverty was so overwhelming. You remember her answer. She said, God does not expect us to be successful. He expects us to be faithful. Well, that quotation has come to mean a lot to me in my work, especially in my work in our high school, because in addition to my teaching and praying, I also coach a rugby team, which has not had a winning season in 15 years. Indeed, we only broke even once. We were four and four, and that year my players tore down the goalposts. <laughs> now, some might argue that a losing streak of this magnitude may have had something to do with my coaching, but I prefer to look at it in biblical terms. <laughs> you see, God has a special affection for losers. You look at all the losers in the long, baffling history of our salvation, starting with the Israelites themselves, whose finest king had a thing for other men's wives, and continuing right through to the age of the apostles, whose first unanimous decision was to run away when their leader got arrested. To our own age, and people like St. Philippine. So when it comes to losing, I sometimes convince myself that it is a sign of God's special affection for my team. For every failure reminds us that our beauty and our value, our integrity, lie not in our accomplishments, but simply in our existence as sons and daughters of God. Now that said, I want to make one thing clear. Failure is bad. Okay? Like all forms of suffering, it is a consequence of original sin. And it is natural, even wise, to avoid failure whenever possible. But just as there is a tendency to romanticize suffering, as though it were a thing to be sought out, or worse yet, enjoyed, so there can be a tendency to romanticize failure, as though it were just an alternative form of success. Like suffering, however, failure can be transfigured and enriched and elevated in the light of the cross, which was, in its own way, the fusion of humanity's greatest failure with its greatest victory. So, just as it was Christ's vocation to die on the cross, so you and I may be called by God to fail from time to time. In fact, I think it's fair to say that we will all inevitably be called to fail on some level. But the good news, with a capital G and a capital N, is that if we can unite that failure with Christ's own suffering, it transforms into this tremendous good. Not just an opportunity to grow or to learn from our mistakes, but a participation in the redemptive sufferings of Christ. Secondly, I'd like to distinguish between failing and being a failure. Okay? A parallel I can be drawn, I think, between sinning 
and being a sinner. When we say, Lord, be merciful to me, a sinner, we do not mean by that to define ourselves by our sins. We are sinners, but our identity is in Christ. Martin Luther used the analogy of a dunghill covered by snow to illustrate his theology of humanity's utter depravity. He said, we're all basically manure, but, uh, let's see, but, but, but Jesus hides this fact from God beneath the snow of his grace, which is totally wrong. It's wrong because it does not acknowledge the fundamental goodness of God's creation. I have to digress here for a second. It, by, I'm, I was t- told this story to Father Pelessier this, this afternoon. I, was in, I, I have a sister who has a four-year-old daughter, and I was playing with her in the living room, and I got up to leave, and she said, where are you going, Gussie? I, that's what she calls me. And, and I said, I'm just going to duck out for a second. She said, you going to poop? <laughs> and I said, well, I, it's a possibility. I'll, I, she goes, it's going to be stinky. <laughs> I'm just warning you. And so I came back a while later, and we were playing again, and she said, Gussie, and I went, oh, no, here we go again. She said, did Jesus poop? And I said, yes, he did. And she went, cool. <laughs> right? Because, and in its own sort of four-year-old way, that is the whole point of the incarnation, right? I mean, nothing, everything is infused with Christ's divinity, Right, even I mean, and that's by the way, as another a footnote to a footnote, that that's why crude words are bad. Is because they take good things like poop and they turn them into shameful things. Right. Anyway, Luther's fundamental error was that he saw the poop as bad to begin with. Right. My 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 niece, that's that's the one thing she can do really well. Right. And she has that in common with Jesus. Well, our identity, in other words, is is in our goodness, not in our sinfulness. We may fail in our endeavors, but we are not failures at heart. Not while we remain united to Jesus and his church. Which is why we can rejoice even when the hour looks darkest. My best friend in grad school was a self-professed bitter ex-Catholic. And he used to say, the problem with you Catholics is that when you're happy, you're happy. But when you're miserable, then you're really happy. Well, that's true. There's something really beautiful about the way Christianity can transform suffering into joy. Which is why we look to saints like Edward and Philippine for inspiration. And why it is such a disappointment To hear people recite platitudes like, you can do anything so long as you put your mind to it. You're perfect just the way you are. Follow your dreams. It's just not true. No one is perfect but God. In my work, I attend a lot of high school graduations. And just about every one of them the uh, valedictorian gets up in front of his friends and he says something like this. He says, well, parents, faculty, fellow students, esteemed students of the blah, blah school, it is a great honor to be here, blah, blah, blah. 
uh, ups and downs, blah, blah. Insert funny story here, blah, blah, blah. Maybe something about God if it's a Catholic school, blah, blah, blah. Never thought we'd make it, blah, blah, blah. Uh, but with a blah, blah education, you'll be prepared to go out and change the world. So follow your dreams and be true to yourself and think outside the box and remember you're perfect just the way you are, blah, blah, blah. Thank you. Right? I mean, well, not all of them sounded exactly like that, but enough did that I finally sat down in the middle of one of these and wrote my own graduation speech. <laughs> Predictably, I'd never been asked to give one until last April. So here it is. I'll just deliver it straight to you. Parents, faculty, and students of Lafayette University, or University of Lafayette. <laughs> you are all going to fail. Over the next few years, you will all inevitably have your hearts broken, experience loneliness, miss a major opportunity, lose a game, lose a job, lose some money, be abandoned, ridiculed, be humiliated and scorned. You, my friends, are destined for failure, and that is very, very sad. But it's also okay, because your God had his heart broken and was ridiculed by his friends. Your God was humiliated and scorned and abandoned, and that means that your dignity is not bound up with your success. You are a child of God. You have been divinized. And in the end, when you lie on your deathbed, as we all inevitably do, without trophies or diplomas or accolades or even your health to comfort you, all that will matter is your existence as a child of God. And it will be enough. In fact, it will be more than enough. It will be everything. As a uh, footnote, I have three favorite failure saints. Uh, this is uh, Moses the Black. Anybody ever heard of him? He was, a, uh, he was one of the early desert fathers. He was a brigand. He, um, the story goes that he, he worshipped the sun because he thought that was the most powerful thing he had ever witnessed. Nothing could resist the sun. And he, uh, he once decided to steal a sheep, and the shepherd's dog barked at him, so he killed the dog. And then he killed the shepherd, and they killed all the sheep because he was on a roll. And, and then ran away because the locals decided that was enough, that too much Moses... And, well, he wasn't Moses at that point. But anyway, they chased him to this monastery where he killed the porter. And then the monk, they came to the doors of the monastery. They said, where is Moses? We want to find Moses. And they, they said, oh, he's nearby. If you keep looking, you might find him. Right? And so they ran on and he said, you aren't afraid of me? He said, no, no, no. Aren't you afraid of the sun? No, no, no. Who do you worship? Jesus. I'm in. Right? So he joined the monastery. Uh, but he never quite gave up beating people up. Um, apparently some of his old buddies tried to rob the monastery and he beat them up and tied them up and dragged them up to the abbot's office. He said, boss, what do you want me to do with these guys? He's like, no, Moses, we don't do that. Um, <laughs> anyway, one thing led to another and the, the great story from his life is that um, 
the, some young monk of the monastery did something scandalous and they, the monastery was, the monks got together to vote, to kick him out, to excommunicate him. And Moses was late. And when he finally showed up, he had this big backpack on full of sand with a hole in the bottom. And he walked in and there's sand flying everywhere. And every time they spoke to him, he turned around and more sand. And they're like, Moses, stop it. What's with the sand? He goes, oh, the sand? He's like, the sand, well, my sins are like this sand. They fly out behind me. He's like, and here I am, though, ready to judge my brother. So they elected him Abbot. And, uh, and not too long afterwards, the Vandals invaded North Africa and, and destroyed his monastery. But before they did, he made sure the rest of his monks got out the back. And the last one out turned to him and handed him a sword. And he said, no, 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 thank you. And the monk said, yeah, but it's okay. You can fight now. And he said, yes, I, I can, but I'd enjoy it. <laughs> so instead, he held the doorposts until his monks got out and he was martyred. Uh, my second favorite, all three of these are, are actually sort of similar. They're all warrior saints who gave up their weapons. Justus Takayama Yukon. And I made my own holy cards because you can't find holy cards of him anywhere. They're on the back table. Help yourself. Um, he was a samurai who was converted by the Jesuits and uh, went off to convert by the sword and killed anyone who wouldn't convert. And so they went chasing after him and said, no, you can't do that. So he famously hung up his katana and he said, from now on, I fight with the words of our Lord Jesus Christ, which turned out to be less effective than the katana because they <laughs> exiled him to uh, the Philippines where he died of malaria, poor guy. And then last of all, Olav of Norway, the only Viking saint, turns out drinking mead out of the skulls of your enemy and being a, Viking, a Catholic are not compatible because his buddies just killed him once he became sort of nonviolent. Uh, for those of you who want some other lesser-known saints, uh, these are a few of my favorites. Drogo, Mucus, Egbert, Hedwig, Wigbert, Dodo, Polio, Hilarious, Eprepius, Willibald, Gleb, Lando, Rudolf, Barfian, Tron, Mungo, Blathmac, Radbod, Guthlack, and Rolox. So that's part two. If you have questions, you can field, I will field them now. Otherwise, I'm just going to keep talking. Anyway, if you have one, raise your hand and I'll just stop what I'm doing. Um, I realize that, that, after a ta uh, that, that failure doesn't sound like much fun. Uh, and, and failure being such a big part of our, our faith can be a bit of a discouragement, especially to young people. I, before I became a monk, I worked for many years as a beach patrol lifeguard in Galveston, Texas. Um, and, and my students often, at, or inevitably, in the course of the year, some student asked me, uh, which was more fun, being a lifeguard or being a monk? And if I'm going to be honest, it was more fun being a lifeguard, right? But equally so, uh, I can say with real confidence that there's nothing more depressing than a 40-year-old lifeguard. Right? There's, there's a point in your life where you do have to choose between joy and fun, right? And you're a fool if you, if you reject joy for the sake of fun, right? I mean, in college, it's mostly fun, okay? But, but then there comes a point where, you know, dating or marriage, 
or dating or celibacy or, or being a beach patrol lifeguard or being a monk. And not that there is anything fun. I, the other day I saw uh, some of our novices had stolen one of the uh, golf carts that belonged to the maintenance crew and were off-roading it, which is incredibly dangerous. Uh, and they, they were having fun. It was fun to watch them. Uh, that said, uh, as well, part, uh, equally part of this equation is apologies. And in fact, we were talking about this uh, not just today as well. Um, in the rule of St. Benedict, uh, he says that the second a monk discerns that his brother is unhappy with him, or distressed, I think he says, you must throw yourself on the floor and beg for a blessing. And, and I do this all the time. Uh, so much so that I think it kind of annoys my brethren. Um, because there's no way to turn somebody down when they're on the floor on their face. Right? Um, and the, the best part of it is, and, and I, I recommend this. I really do. I tell my students, like the next time you're really in trouble, throw yourself on the floor and beg for a blessing. And they don't believe me until one of them inevitably comes back and is like, I did it. My mom started crying. Like my dad, my dad got uncomfortable and left the room. Like I'm, I'm off scot-free, right? And then it's, and the best part of it is you don't have to feel sorry, right? It's not even really an apology, right? Uh, but, but, but if you think about it, like if you wait till you feel sorry, I, I mean, I wouldn't apologize for virtually anything. Right? If you wait to see who's right before you apologize, nobody ever ends. I mean, it can last for weeks or months or years or your lifetime. Um, it, but but what, what, what prostrating yourself does, and for me, I think this is, I mean, I, I'm six foot three, right? And if I say I'm really sorry, it doesn't feel like I'm apologizing. But when I'm underneath begging for a blessing, it restores some of the dignity that was taken away by whatever I did. I, I told this joke in, uh, in the faculty room not long ago, and, and afterwards one of the faculty came up to me and said, I found that really offensive. I, I, between, between you and me, off the record, I, I, don't think it was that, I don't think it was offensive at all, but anyway. Um, but St. Benedict says, you don't, you don't question it. So I got right down on my knees and I said, you know, the rule says to beg for a blessing when you distress someone, so may I please have your blessing. And she looked at me and she went, I was wrong. <laughs> Which is like the fastest I've ever won an argument. <laughs> How am I doing? For, oh, good, I, I'm, I'm almost done here. I, uh, yeah, uh, or, or uh, you know, one of the things, I, oh, yes. That's a good point. When you have it? <laughs> I don't know. I mean, if you think about it, you know, one thing that's always kind of distressed me about the Gospels is you never hear about Jesus telling a joke, right, or laughing. Um, but, but he must have been joy, full of joy, right? But at the same time, like, his greatest moment is that moment on the cross, and that wasn't happiness. And I think the distinction here is between happiness, which has an element of randomness to it. I mean, in English, it comes from hap, like perhaps, happenstance. You're lucky if you're happy, right? And that can change in a second. But joy is something, something deeper. 
Um, I, I'm, I'm convinced, uh, I've been writing, I'm writing a book now on decision making, and, and it's really interesting that even like secular sources seem to agree, seem to be coming to the same conclusion. I, I read an article in the New York Times entitled, Why You Will Marry the Wrong Woman. <laughs> but, and his point isn't that you really will, his point is out of 2.25 billion people, you're unlikely to pick the one person perfect for you. So make it work, <laughs> right? I mean, and, and I'm not married, but my understanding is that it's really more about perseverance than it is about like candy canes and cotton floss. Um, that, I, in fact, I was talking to my mom about this. <laughs> She's gonna kill me for repeating this, but I, 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 was ta I was talking to her about this and she said, yeah, there was a decade there with your dad. And I was like, what? A decade? <laughs> like, she, and these two are, are really happily married. Um, so I, I honestly, I don't know what, well, I do know what, well, it's like that, who was that judge that said about pornography? I don't, I can't define it, but I know it when I see it, right? It's, that, that's a terrible analogy. <laughs> but, but, but it applies. I, I don't, I can't define it, but you know a joyful person when you see it. I mean, I think the reason I became a monk was because the monks were so joyful. I mean, the, the happiest people I've ever known were monks. Um, we had, he's dead now, but he, I mean, and, and he used to talk about it all the time. I, I was walking by his room one afternoon. I was like, hello, father. He's like, hello, how are you doing? Waiting to die. That's what he said. And he would wake up in the morning and, and he would, and he had this walker and I'd say, hello, father Patrick. And he'd go, hello. Like, like he had never seen me before. Like this is like every day was a gift. I mean, that's, that's joy. But I think it also is earned through a lot of suffering <laughs> that, that you come out. I, I also met, I had the great honor of meeting this Vietnamese priest who had spent six and a half years in a four by seven, a four by three foot hole. He had spent six years in there and about halfway through they had thrown another guy in with him, right? And he was the ha not the happiest. Yeah, he was actually, he was even happy. He was the most joyful, happy person I've ever met. I don't know how that's possible, but, but somehow persevering like that leads to it. I don't know. That didn't really answer your question, but it was funny. Um, right. Um, oh, and actually, I, 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 it's easier to define evil than to define good. The one thing that will kill joy more than anything else. In fact, here's a, here's a, a quiz for you. Uh, what is the one thing that St. Benedict forbids his monks above all else? More than, I, when I ask this of my students, they always say, you know, killing someone or running off with a lady or breaking your vows. But no, St. Benedict, in the course of his rule, and it's, it's a tiny little book, and he never repeats himself. He says three times, ante omnia, the monks, before, above all other things, the monks must not grumble, right? And, and which seems like, I mean, it seems like such a small thing until you live in community for a while, I, until you live in any community. I mean, a, an office community, a family community, there's nothing that will undermine joy so effectively as that backstabbing, cowardly, tooth-gnashing, <laughs> 
And it can take so many forms. Like it can be, it can be, it can be, it can masquerade as compassion. Poor brother so-and-so, he's so incompetent. <laughs> I wish I could help him, right? Or, or his humor, like, oh, there he goes again. <laughs> right? I mean, it's, it, you could, or, I mean, I heard one of my students the other day in the hallway saying to, this, to his friend, listen, if you're going to say something bad about me, at least make sure it isn't true. <laughs> I mean, it's even worse if it's true because you can't defend yourself, right? Or, or my favorite, this is nothing I wouldn't tell him to his face. Well, don't tell it to his face either then, right? Sorry. <clears throat> yeah. Um, it, it, now, so, so the antidote to joy, as it were, is, is, is grumbling. And the antidote to grumbling is obedience, right? That, that in fact, um, okay, I'll tell two more stories and then I'm out. Uh, when I, when, I was, when I decided to become a monk, uh, I decided that I would never have another lustful thought, which, which lasted about like seven minutes. And, and so I decided to put it off till I started my, my novitiate. Uh, and, that, and, it, and I didn't have any more success there either. Um, but I was reading through the life of St. Francis, and I got to the part where he was plagued by lustful thoughts, right? So he threw himself in a rose bush, right? And, and it happens that we have a rose garden behind the monastery. <laughs> yeah, you can see where this is going, right? So I thought, you know, if it was good enough for Francis, it's good enough for me. This is actually in the book, by the way. The, I wanted to take it out, and they insisted on keeping it, and now it's everybody's favorite part. Um, so I, I, I went out behind the monastery, and I dove right in, as they say. It, but, but I, see, I had neglected to take into account three really crucial, crucial elements. The first of which is that Francis threw himself into a wild rose bush, which has little tiny thorns, right? Um, and the second thing was that Francis threw, was naked when he jumped into the rose bush, so his clothes didn't get caught up in it, right? He didn't get trapped there. Um, <laughs> And then last of all, and most importantly, that Francis was a saint, okay? And I'm just Augustine, and, and I just looked stupid, and felt stupid, and was stupid, and, and I was stuck in that rosebush, and, and I must, I don't know how long, I mean, it felt like hours, it was probably you know, like 20 minutes, before my novice master walked by. You know, and by that I mean he walked by. He like, looked, he was like, aha. And he returned with the rest of the community. <laughs> and they all stood around and had a good laugh and they kind of sort of pulled me out of the, and my habit was demolished. And, and he, he brought me back to novitiate and, I, and he said, now first of all, that's all gonna be infected. So go do what you gotta do. But second of all, before you attempt any further feats of asceticism, talk to me first, <laughs> all right? We've all been there, right? I was like, in the rose bush? He's like, well, no, I'm not in the rose bush. <laughs> right, so all this talk of, uh, of failure, um, with this, I'll, I'll just end with one last little story. When I, when I decided to become a monk, I, my roommate from college decided to become a movie star. And yeah, he moved off to L.A., and he married a Sports Illustrated model, and he was on JAG and Days of Our Lives and uh, a movie called Devil's Playground, which isn't nearly as horrible as it sounds. And I've seen it. 
and um, and he, he 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 would call me on the phone periodically, and he would say, you know, because we're allowed to talk with the outside world once a month in the novitiate, and he'd say, guess who's Teen Magazine's hunk of the month, you know, and I'd be like, oh, you, I'm in the monastery, so you, you know. <laughs> Or, or he, or he called. He was like, "I had dinner last night with Emmy Lou Harris," and to this day, I don't know who Emmy Lou Harris is. But I, <laughs> God, I want to have dinner with her. Um, and he lived upstairs from Heather Graham, and he just had this incredible-sounding life. And actually, I, you know, I, I time out for a second. I, whenever I tell this story, I feel bad because it makes Scott sound like a, a sort of a materialistic jerk, but he wasn't. He, he was a great guy. Uh, and his wife is is beautiful on the outside and the inside. In fact, he he uh, for I mean, he's actually well. Spoiler alert: they both converted to Catholicism two years ago. But at the time at the time of their 15 year anniversary, he got her name tattooed on his shoulder because he knew someone who designed graphics for the movies and stuff. And when he came home and showed it to her, she said, "Is that Janelle with one N or two?" <laughs> So he misspelled her name. Uh, yeah, and the next, well, the next year on their anniversary, she came home. She had been to the judge and had her name legally changed. So yeah, I know. I mean, they're great. Scott and Janelle, they're they're beautiful. Um, but in any case, his his life, needless to say, was a real temptation to me. And you know, he, he said, you know, come out to L.A. You know, I'll get you in a movie. You know, why not? You know, and if it doesn't work out, you know. Uh, somehow, against all odds, uh, the monks let me enter and uh, take vows. And um, after a while, the abbot decided to send me off to get my studies. And I got permission to visit Scott, who was now living in New York, on my way. And, uh, and, and I did. And he lived in a loft on top of a skyscraper in the meat packing district, which is apparently really cool. Um, and, and New York is just nasty on ground level, but from a skyscraper, it's beautiful. And, and he had this party in my honor um, uh, on the day I, I departed. And, and he, he had all of his friends come, and they were beautiful. And, and the, his, his apartment, his loft was beautiful, and he had these... He had these beautiful hors d'oeuvres and, 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 and waiters who served beautiful drinks. And, and I was sitting on the couch in the middle of all this beauty, having a complete vocation crisis, <laughs> when, when this jewelry designer from Soho named Charlotte sat down next to me and she said, so, why'd you have to become a monk? Isn't it enough just to be a good person? And, and really, she couldn't have picked a worse moment to ask me this. Um, but as, as occasionally happens, this, the Holy Spirit stepped in on my behalf. And, and I, I took my beautiful drink and I set it down on the table. And I took my beautiful hors d'oeuvre and I threw it back. And I looked at her and I said, no, no, it's not enough just to be a good person. All right? I mean, because what's the alternative? To be a bad person? Nobody's called to that, right? Being a good person is the minimum. I don't want to do the minimum. I want to be a saint, right? I want to give and give till it hurts, right? And, 
And then I went off to the bathroom and I cried. But <laughs> the, point, the point stands that, that, that in spite of all this mediocrity and fail, all this failure and, and, and suffering, in spite of it all, this is not about mediocrity, all right? This is, about, this is about sainthood. Every one of us is called to give till it hurts, to become canonized saints in the Roman calendar. And if not that, just uncanonized saints. Every one of us, you and me. So that's my prayer for you tonight. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. Dear God, make us saints. Give us the wisdom and the patience and the knowledge and the virtue and, and everything that it takes to be to, to, to sing your praises in heaven as we are all called to be. And we ask this, no, we wrap these all petitions up in the mantle of Our Lady as we say, Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou amongst women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners, now and at the hour of our death. Amen. Saint Justus Takayama Yukon. Pray for us. In the name of the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. Amen. Thank you.